0: Hi everyone, and welcome to The Synapse Podcast, where we connect the brain to, well, everything. We decided to start this podcast because we believe that knowledge about the brain should be accessible to everyone, and that it can help us better understand ourselves and the world. The Synapse was founded by Liri Haram, Mahima Golani, Noam Eckhaus, and myself, Sarah Bennett. We started our journey in the neuroscience and education program here at Teachers College, Columbia University, and we're so excited to have you here. At The Synapse, we invite amazing speakers, expert neuroscientists from all over the world to have conversations with us about topics that many of us think about almost every day, like art and music, sleep, AI, trauma, consciousness, and many more. In the first few episodes, we're providing some technical and foundational background so that we can really dive into these fascinating topics. So for those of you who are new to this material, please don't be scared of the terms and concepts that you hear. We promise that they will feel more and more familiar the more you engage. It's one of the most inspiring things about the brain that whatever we practice and come across over and over again, we learn. We invite you to come into this space with a growth mindset. Anyone who is curious is welcome. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the central nervous system and the brain more specifically. We'll be walking through specific terms related to neurobiology. We'll talk about how neurons communicate with each other and with our body, the importance of the brain's protective barrier, and how the brain and body are always in communication. Considering our guest speaker's expertise, we'll also talk about a big part of our daily lives and a great example of the connections between the brain and body, stress. It's a really insightful episode. It turned out to be a beautiful dance between biology and neuroscience and how they relate to our daily lives. In this episode, Leary is in conversation with Dr. Ann Oliveira, another one of our favorite professors here at Teachers College, Columbia University. Dr. Oliveira graduated from Emory University with a PhD in neuroscience. Her graduate research focused on the interactions between the immune system and the brain and the development of novel antidepressants. She completed a medical degree at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and is currently completing residency in the combined neurology and psychiatry program at NYU Langone Medical Center. I've been lucky to take one of her courses here at Teachers College called Psychoneuroimmunology, and it was amazing. We don't know how she found the time for our conversation today, but we're so grateful she did. And so without further ado, here is Liri Haram and Dr. Anlis Oliveira for an introduction to the brain.
1: All right. All right, all right. <laughs> Welcome Dr. Oliveira. I am so happy to be here to have this chat with you. You are honestly one of my favorite professors in the program. Oh, could God. listen to you explain just about anything. So before we dive in, to our very interesting topics today, um, we talk a lot about the brain, but it's actually part of our central nervous system, or CNS. We can dive in to talk about what is the central nervous system.
2: Yeah, so you
1: know, we always start
2: class by saying the nervous system is divided into two parts: a central nervous system and a peripheral nervous system. And that central nervous system includes your brain and your spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And anything that exits from the spinal cord of the brain, it's now part of the peripheral nervous system, as well as any other neurons or nerves that live outside
1: in your body are part of that peripheral nervous system.
2: But yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And what are nerves and what are neurons? What is the difference?
2: That's good. So neurons is what we call the main cell in your brain that does every important function that makes you you, that makes you function, right? Your, your motor abilities your ability to sense the world your ability to think and interact with the world that's what the neurons are doing they're not the only cells in your brain there's a lot of other cells that are also helping those Mm -hmm. neurons are completely vulnerable and useless by themselves Um, but but neurons are what we say we call the you know the building blocks of the brain and that without them you wouldn't you wouldn't be a human you'd be maybe a zombie. I don't think zombies have working neurons. <laughs> so, that's a
1: that's, yeah. a, that's a whole other episode.
2: Yeah. But the <laughs> nerves are, you know, we talk about nerves and peripheral nervous system. So these are axons. This is how neurons communicate with other cells. They send, they extend out a uh, process called an axon. You, know, you can think of it as like a little tube that exits out and it'll exit out of the brain. It'll exit out of the spinal cord. And when, bunch of axons come together, like hundreds and thousands. They form this thick bundle that is called a nerve. Mm. Um, So whenever people talk about nerve pain, they're not talking about one axon. They're talking about many different axons bundled together. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So you already mentioned that neurons aren't the only important cells in the brain. I remember when I was first learning about the brain, it it blew my mind a little how many different cells uh, there really are in our brains. Um, For example, some cells create this protective layer that coats neurons called myelin. Myelin, for those who may not be familiar, is a fatty layer that helps to support cell communication. So it acts like an insulator and helps the electrical signals or messages pass down the axon faster. Um, So my first question, I guess, is where does that myelin come from? And then also, what about other cells that support the health and function of neurons?
2: Yeah, so first of all, when it comes to the cells that produce that myelin, it's actually part of the body of cells that are called oligodendrocytes. So those cells wrap themselves. They wrap the little bodies. It's like, you know, mama bear hugging its little baby bear. That's its axon. And it lives wrapped around all of these axons. So you have oligodendrocytes. You have Schwann, uh, Schwann cells, which are in the periphery uh, and do the same job. And then you have... Um, you have a lot of astroglia, which are, we, we think of them as the supporting cells of the brain. I think of them as like the mother of the brain. They're really the reason why neurons can do what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't give them enough credit for everything that they do, but they're there to do everything. They will monitor the environment for this neuron. They will absorb anything that's going to come to harm them or anything that's around in excess. They will release what that neuron needs when it needs it. Like, if there's not enough nutrients around, it will provide. It will, um, you know, it will also keep that neuron in check. It tells it how to be active Mm -hmm. and when to be active. It also protects your brain by forming part of the blood brain barrier, which I'm sure that we'll talk about, but it's protecting those neurons from any outside invaders that can come into the brain and, and damage them. Um, so these these astroglia do so much and so much that we still don't understand. And we see that they're actually involved in any neurological disorder mm-hmm. and likely any psychiatric disorder, but we know less about them in that context because we don't really think about them as being important players, but they absolutely will be.
1: So, yeah, this
2: is yeah. one
1: of those things that has been gaining more and more focus recently where classically used to think of neurons as the stars and everything else is kind of, why would we need so many of those? Why, yeah. What are, what are all these, you know, redundancies? No, they they're all have such distinct and nuanced roles that we're just beginning yeah. to figure out. Yeah. Um,
2: and of course you have also my favorite cell, it's microglia. Your favorite <laughs> cell. Why is I it your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> You've heard me say this before. Um, microglia is the you know, the the caricature way of describing is it. the resident immune cell of the brain. As its name implies, it only lives in the brain and mm-hmm. the spinal cord in the central nervous system. And it is an immune cell. It's not a nervous system cell, but it comes in very early in development, sets up shop. And it lives along these neurons for the rest of their lives until you die. Um, And it takes care of them in a million ways. It's not only as an immune cell that it's not there just to protect them from infection or from injury or, you know, tumors, whatever it may be. But it's also there to just interact with them on a daily basis for every function. So every time you're reading, you're thinking, you're moving, whatever it is that you're doing, that your neurons are carrying out that process microglia are interacting and allowing them to do it
1: efficiently and optimally mm-hmm. so yeah. and when you say early in development we're talking about like in fetal development very very early exactly
2: early in like in the first 20 days mm. of brain development these guys make their way in and, and I call them guys but obviously
1: they don't <laughs> pals our pals <laughs> these dudes and dudettes make
2: their way in
1: <laughs> uh, but microglia are just incredible yeah. I I and the fact that they allow for such like diverse immune function within the brain and protect yeah. neurons so much because neurons are pretty good at communicating with one another, which we're about to to kind of get into, but they need to get so much information from the environment that is hard to get without all of these cells yeah. helping them out.
2: Yeah. They're so powerful just to think about, you know, the fact that we can create spaceships and go to the moon we can cure diseases we can you know invent beautiful art of thin air out of thin air right like something that never even existed before we can be at the top of the food chain and all of that is you know we have that capacity because of how these neurons the function that they have right but the fact is that they're so powerful, but without all these other cells, they're nobody. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: they, would be, they would be dead pretty quick. Yeah.
2: Yeah. They're nobody. They need the constant guidance from mm-hmm. these other cells. So,
1: Yeah. That's such a whole other rabbit hole, uh, which I'd love to also discuss with you because there is just all the nuances of these cells. It's so fascinating. But why don't we talk a little bit about communication between neurons?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if, if you've never seen a neuron, uh, there's a lot of, you know, figures online that show you, again, a caricature of what a neuron looks like. You should know that neurons can be very diverse. The usual representation of a neuron that you find in pictures is, you know, it has this bushy area that looks like a tree. And those are the dendrites, right? And it has this cell that looks like a round thing. And then it has this long tube that's its axon. And that is the caricature of it. They come in so many different shapes, and the shape tells us something about its function, but part of its function is to be able to connect to many, many other neurons. And so they do this by allowing other cells to come close to it, um, to its dendrites for the most part, is how they're going to pick up or receive information. But you can also receive information at the level of the cell body as well as at the level of the axon itself. Um, And so they have... They, they receive information through these dendrites. They're going to communicate with the other cells by firing an action potential. And the goal of that action potential is to release the uh, neurotransmitters at the end of the axon. Mm-hmm. And these neurotransmitters will um, then go across a synapse. And a synapse, it's just the space between the cell that's sending that information, the cell that just fired the action potential, and the other cell that's nearby that it wants to communicate with. So that space, called the synapse, will be filled with neurotransmitters that are released from this axon. And those neurotransmitters can bind a receptor. Um, but the goal is to be able to make that other cell carry out a new message, whether it is go ahead and fire action potential and activate the cells you're connected to or quiet down for now Right, and don't fire. Don't relay.
1: Yeah. Woo, okay. This is a complicated concept, so let me just go through the steps again. Wow. So a neuron receives a message that it needs to relay. The way to relay this message is through an electrical impulse that travels down the axon from, let's say, the top of the neuron all the way to the bottom. This electrochemical process is what we call an action potential, it can result in the release of neurotransmitters from this one neuron into the synapse. So the neurotransmitters are hanging out in the synapse or the space between the neurons, where then they might bind to receptors on the neurons nearby. Now, sometimes when the neurotransmitters bind to receptors, it results in prompting another action potential in the next neuron. And sometimes it doesn't. In reality, each neuron is connected to a lot of other neurons, and they're receiving a lot of information simultaneously.
2: Exactly, and so obviously that's a, a you know a very simplistic view of it. It's quite a complex interaction mm-hmm. um, that results in whether or not a cell. That results in determining whether or not a cell fires an action potential. Uh, but in the most basic way to describe it, that action potential, all it, all it is, is the movement of positive ions like sodium moving from one end of the axon down to the button of the axon, which is the end where it's going to release those uh, neurotransmitters. And if they can make it there, as they're moving along, they're changing what is called the membrane potential, which is just a difference in the charge between the inside and the outside of the cell. Once that action potential makes it to the end of the axon, it activates other processes that result in the release of these Mm -hmm. neurotransmitters. Um, And that's the basic way that they communicate with one another. Some cells can actually just, they're connected, like physically connected to one another. So like gap junctions, uh, it's one of the ways that they can talk to one another. They actually share these uh, channels Channels. that allow for movement of ions across these cells. But for the most part, most neurons in in your brain and in your
1: spinal cord
2: will talk to one another
1: using neurotransmitters. Every time a process like this starts, there are so many possible outcomes because a lot of processes are happening simultaneously because each neuron connects to so many other neurons. And somehow at the end of all of this, you get a result that is a yes or no for the most part.
2: Yeah. So that's that's a really great point, because you might see statistics out there that say something like, you know, each neuron can connect to like another 50,000 other neurons. And the fact is that, indeed, they are receiving signals from thousands of other neurons at the same time. And some of these signals are going to contradict each other. Mm -hmm. Some of those signals are saying, go ahead and fire an action potential. Pass on this information. And others are going to say, no, quiet down. And that cell really has to think about it. (laughs) Like, what do you want me to do? And when it hears, you know, when it hears the message clearly... um, and you know, these are all euphemisms in the way that we mm-hmm. talk about it. Yeah. But but once it is able to sift through all that noise and determine that it will fire an action potential, there's still a lot, as you mentioned, a lot of other steps that need to be working properly in order for, for that action potential to work successfully and be able to communicate with the next cell. Mm-hmm. Most cells will talk to a few other cells, but they're receiving information from thousands of mm-hmm. cells at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, that connectivity between these cells is what makes these extensive and complex networks of cells, right? It's like networks in your community. Whenever we talk about networking and we're like, go out to, into your community and start meeting people and tell them <laughs> your name or something. That's what they're doing, too. Your cells are networking and they're, they're networked. They never work on their own. They work together as a unit. And it is these networks that are able to carry out these complex human behaviors, like going
1: to the moon. right? <laughs> or like having a conversation, trying to explain exactly. the brain. <laughs> exactly. Incredibly complex. And also part of the reason why, even though computational neuroscience is becoming more and more kind of noticeable out in the world, and there are so many different AI implications that we're all very much privy to now. And we didn't used to be right. It used to be more behind the scenes. Now everyone hears about it all the time, but it's actually so incredibly difficult to get anything that's even close to what the brain does every second we're alive. Absolutely. We can build
2: microchips that can work so much faster than what your thinking process is happening. But the fact is that your brain is doing such complex, parallel, Mm -hmm. you know, computations that, it's hard to mimic that. And I think that part of what's hard to mimic out in the world in you know something that's created uh, with computers <laughs> or technology is that spontaneous interaction that happens that gives rise to that creativity mm-hmm. and adaptability. Um, and so you have to teach, You know, you have to teach a robot to be able to carry out these new functions and, you know, figure out new things. And that's definitely possible. It can definitely still be, there's some level of creativity in, you know, in in artificial intelligence. Um, But, you know, humans have been able to survive for so many years because our brains can do this already and can do it so well we
1: kind of make yeah. novel yeah. implications and get novel ideas yeah which is something that's very very hard to replicate yeah when exactly. you're programming something to do one thing although we kind of are programmed to survive in a way
2: <laughs> yeah that is true and sometimes that goes wrong and you know we, we yep. do our best to not survive <laughs>
1: Um, I'm going to backtrack a little mm-hmm. so we can discuss neurotransmitters. What even is a neurotransmitter? How does it work? If you could give us a couple of examples of things we may have heard about and not quite know what their mechanism is yet. Yeah.
2: So I think, you know, people are probably really familiar with the word hormone, right? Because you've gone to your doctor and talked about hormones in your body. They're all molecules that you release. Most of these neurotransmitters are going to be made out of amino acids. So they're called like peptide hormones in the body, like norepinephrine, epinephrine, also known as noradrenaline or adrenaline or dopamine or serotonin. So these are amino acids, the ones that you eat from the turkey, right, all those proteins in that good turkey, and then it gets broken down. And those amino acids are made available to every cell in your body, including your neurons, so that it can change the structure of that amino acid to build a specific neurotransmitter that will then go on to have a specific function. So we think of like, Dopamine, for example, being really important for many different things in cognition, including attention and memory and reward and our ability to feel good, so our mood, but also for movement and so on. But it actually turns out to be the exact same neurotransmitter that you can just change slightly, you know, using uh, another enzyme. Which is just another protein in the body, but another enzyme that can then give rise to slightly different neurotransmitters. So, like norepinephrine and epinephrine actually come from the same pathway that we build dopamine from. Mm. The same amino acid that makes dopamine can then be converted into the next neurotransmitter. Um, Multi-use proteins. Yeah, exactly. So it is a molecule and it's a way that the cells in your brain communicate with one another, right? It's able to release them. They're able to travel. They can travel short distances in that synapse or they can actually be released into your bloodstream and travel everywhere in your body because almost every single cell that is important. I'm sure there's a lot of them that are not, (laughs) but almost every single cell that's important will have these receptors for neurotransmitters. Right, and so they're able to bind the next cell. Usually, if it's in the brain, we call it a postsynaptic cell, so the cell that sits after the synapse, and carry out some function in that cell. Right, you might have heard about serotonin. Mm. Similar thing, it's used for, or we know that it's um, it plays a role in all kinds of behaviors. Uh, definitely a mood, right? We think about serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, which is one of the major classes of antidepressants that we give for depression, for OCD, for PTSD, for anxiety, you name it. So it's involved in so many different symptoms related to mood and other psychiatric disorders, but um, it is also really important for learning and for memory and for, in fact, even just motor function, like anything that the brain does, makes use of all these neurotransmitters in multiple ways. Um, Others are acetylcholine. You might have heard of glutamate. Uh, Glutamate is the number one um, uh, excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, and that just means it tends to uh, excite the next cell to fire an action potential, right? It's Mm -hmm. activating the next cell. GABA is a you know, the main inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. So it tends to quiet down or inhibit the next cell from firing an action potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of like oxytocin as well, right? It's in, in the news all the time that the, uh, um, I had, I, I think I told you guys recently, by one of my, somebody I know, not gonna say, <laughs> say where they came from. Somebody I know, uh, you know, had read the same literature that I have on the role of oxytocin in social behaviors. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of work as an undergraduate at Florida State uh, looking at pair bonding and social mm-hmm. behaviors and the role of different different neurotransmitters like dopamine and um, uh, oxytocin and vasopressin and so on. Because but with oxytocin, oxytocin it's oxytocin known that's like also
1: known as the love uh, hormone. Yeah, or
2: the monogamy <laughs> hormone, <laughs> right? And so you can actually buy it on on Amazon, please don't, (laughs) (laughs) don't. (laughs) unless it smells good and fine, it's perfume, who cares, but it's not (laughs) going to make anybody monogamous, Um, (laughs) you know, and, and, and it's funny because I always have to explain this to people, when we're talking about the literature of what a monogamy related hormone or monogamous behaviors are in the animal kingdom, it's not what we think about when we're thinking about humans, Right. In human relationship, I think that monogamy means it's just you and me, right? It's a close relationship, the two of us. That's not what it means. In the animal kingdom at all, there's you and me and 20,000 others. (laughs) And that's okay. It's still considered a monogamous relationship. It's all about being together to raise an offspring together, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so oxytocin plays a major role in that and this person really believes that it can deepen social connection to people and like maybe even encourage some of the guys that come visit to be, you know, interested in being more serious and committed in their relationship and maybe even monogamous. And, um, and, you know, she's telling me that she's buying it on Amazon. I was like, oh, that's great. Well, how are you using it? Because, you know, it can only cross blood brain barrier through, you know, very few paths. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in one of them, it's, you know, spraying it up the nose. So there's a lot of, of research about this in, like, the autism literature, for example. Um, and she's like, oh, yeah, no, I just, uh, you know, I spray it all over myself, like perfume. And then, like, as people walk in, I just spray it all over them. <laughs> And I just cover them in it and then I cover myself and then we're connected. <laughs> Actually, done. you are yeah. bonded. Yeah. I'm like, it doesn't work like pheromones, but okay. <laughs> if that's, you know, that's the least harmful thing you can do. Like that's okay. So, you know, my, my other people, um, I have other people who have, uh, sprayed people with Lysol as they walk in the door. So I guess it's okay to spray them with oxytocin. It seems All less considered. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, All right. I think um, before we move on to talk more about the brain-body connection and and definitely the blood-brain barrier, um, can we go into more detail about what the peripheral nervous system is and what the nerves outside of the central nervous system do?
2: Yeah. So in order for your central nervous system to communicate with any other organ outside of the central nervous system right outside of your spinal cord or your brain and needs to be able to send these accents out and it's actually also receiving information in through that peripheral nervous system right it's it needs to be able to bring in details about what you're sensing in the world uh you know what you're seeing, what you're smelling, what you're tasting, what you're hearing, what's pressing against your skin, what temperature it is, how hard is it pressing, where your muscles are in space, if your leg it's, you know, turned in in one direction and at what angle. Like all this information is constantly being brought into the brain so that it can analyze its environment and help you make the decisions to achieve some goal that you might have, right? So... It does this by making use of the peripheral nervous system to bring all this information in. And at the same time, it needs to be able to connect to every muscle and your heart and your lungs and your liver and your gut and everything, your face, your lips, your tongue. Everything needs to be connected in order for it to continue having a function. So there's some organs that can function independently even if they were not connected to the central nervous system. Or like The heart will still keep beating, but its rhythm will become dysregulated, mm-hmm. and it will no longer be sustainable. Um, the, the liver can definitely continue doing its job. The kidneys can continue doing its job, and it doesn't care about what's happening in the brain, and it doesn't need instructions, but they are constantly interacting with the central nervous system to do their job effectively so that they meet the challenges that you're coming across in the world. right? So that's what the peripheral nervous system is doing. There it is, mostly axons, but there's ganglions, uh, which just means, or ganglia, uh, <laughs> it's the plural word, which just means there's a collection of neurons that sit outside of the central nervous system that are part of this peripheral nervous system. And they sit in discrete places throughout the body. And they're going to be bringing information in and sending information out in order to connect. It's the highways that connect the brain and the spinal cord
1: to the rest of the body. Yeah. Amazing. There's so much going on at any given time for us to be here. Exactly. (laughs) And aware. Oh, yeah. Um, I think with getting sensory information from the environment, it's so interesting how something like the pelvic floor will have such a poor map of it. Because mm-hmm. we can't also visualize it. And we spend, sadly, a lot of our life ki- lives kind of ignoring it. And then when yeah. something is not going so well, just teaching the brain how to map it out yeah. can be like half the process in getting things to work better.
2: Absolutely. Which is wild. <laughs> and it also means that, you know, there's so many levels where things can go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So I just spent many hours taking an exam where it asked a thousand times you know this person comes in with this sensory deficits usually you know they have some numbness or weakness in their pinky toe and their right finger and their you know it's throughout their body and as a neurologist i see this all the time in the clinic but i have to actually this you know find out if the problem is because of nerves outside of the central nervous system that is nerves that are part of the peripheral nervous system that go to each of the limbs And innervate your skin so that it can sense. Um, And if it is that peripheral nervous system, there's many different kinds of nerves, so many receptors and uh, information coming in through different pathways to tell you if it is. You know, you can be, you can lose your ability to sense cold, but still have the ability to sense pressure Mm -hmm. or pain. Um, And you know, you can lose all of it, Uh, and and it's completely numb. Your arm is just sitting there, and you can't even feel when somebody touches it. But the damage can be either in the peripheral nervous system or the central nervous system, and you have to work it out. Um, and so symptoms will be slightly different depending on where that injury is coming from, but it, it definitely is quite complex that there's all these
1: things interconnected that make it harder for us to treat people. To even understand <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so you mentioned the blood-brain barrier, Um and I'd love to hear a little bit about what it is. What is it a barrier against or for? Are there other ways things can get in the brain? Yeah, that's,
2: you know, the blood brain barrier is something that also doesn't get to be, you know, it's not a super hot topic in, in the news. So most people don't really get to hear about it. So what does it do? It's, it's like a shield for your brain. So your brain needs a lot of oxygen and glucose to work. And a lot of other vitamins and a lot of other useful things like, like um, you know, the same ions that like sodium, potassium, but also uh, the amino acids, right? So all of these things need to make it into your brain. And it does that. It's carried from your body to your brain via the blood vessels, right? And so your brain is very highly vascularized. It just means there's a lot of blood vessels throughout in order to be able to deliver what it needs, The problem is that your brain is the one organ, and I'm sure whoever's listening out there can think of other organs that this is true about, but I'm super biased. But the brain is really like the main organ that you can't replace, right? Like if your liver fails, we have machines to do the job Until we can get you a new liver. And we can actually give you a new liver. If your kidneys fail, the same thing. If your spleen fails, who cares? We'll take it out. If your heart fails, if your lungs fail, we can replace those too. And we have machines to take over the work until they start, you know, the new ones start working. But we can't do that for your brain. Mm -hmm. There's no way to replace it. There's no machine that can take over and keep you, you know, keep you functional uh, while a new brain is being put in, right? And so it's, it's very vulnerable in that it's something that cannot be replaced if it is damaged. So you have to protect it at all costs. And there's many mechanisms that have evolved over time to protect that brain at all costs. And one of the ways that it does this is by forming a shield around the blood vessels to prevent anything from coming through that's not supposed to be there. Right. Our kidneys and our liver and our heart and everybody else is constantly being exposed to anything that's in blood, which can come from your gut, it can come from your skin, it can come from any injury, it can come from any drug that you are exposed to, any toxins you're exposed to, like you're breathing it in or swallowing it, whichever way, all right? So um, all these organs are constantly being exposed to these potential harmful molecules Uh, but that's okay because they regenerate pretty well and if they don't end up regenerating, we we have a way to fix it, as I mentioned. But your brain cannot do that. So we need to be able to block those molecules Mm -hmm. from being able to make it. Sometimes it's bacteria or parasites or viruses. We are able to keep you know, keep a lot of these things out of the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. It's not foolproof. There's definitely areas that are called leaky blood-brain barrier regions where things can get through and things do get through. We still get brain infections all the time. And that's because things can make it across across a blood-brain barrier. Um, but it turns out that there's specialized cells that form part of the wall of your blood vessels in the brain. That are not really everywhere else in the body at all. Mm. So blood vessels everywhere, on the, uh, everywhere else in the body come together and form, you know, f- they, they come close to each other and form kind of like a seam that's a little bit loose. So things can easily come in and out of that. But in the brain, they have these really, really tight junctions uh, from one another. It's like putting on three sippers at once to make sure that nothing could possibly break through. Things still can c- go through. Anything that's what we call lipid-soluble, anything that's fat, can definitely just go across any, you know, any cell. There's nobody that can hold that back, like your steroid hormones, like cortisol, estrogen, progesterone, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some drugs and other molecules that are also lipid-soluble that can easily make it across. Very, very small things can also make it across, gases can make it across some small viruses can still find their way through so you have to be extra tiny to make it across but it's doable Mm. Um, but for the most part it keeps a lot of the harmful things out it also not just are these cells of your blood vessels super specialized and making these tight junctions but you also have astrocytes forming and a second layer around those tight junctions to like plug in the holes, so that if anything tries to actually make it through, they are going to push it back, absorb it, remove it, tell everybody else, sound the alarm, they're going to be ready. And so that's that's what, we're, wha- that's what we mean when we're talking about your blood-brain barrier. But there's areas where you need a lot of these bigger molecules to make it across so that your brain can make use of it. And so, for example, areas of the brain that make cerebral spinal fluid or CSF, these are areas that are leaky blood-brain barrier regions, because we do need nutrients to come across and other signaling molecules coming from the body so that the brain can make use of those. And that is an area where other invaders can also make their way through if they find their way to that area, um, So, unfortunately, it's not foolproof, but a lot of things can break down your blood-brain barrier. Certain drugs do it. Uh, Alcohol, uh, injuries to the brain, like a traumatic brain injury, Uh, certain infections can also damage a blood-brain barrier. Um, Smoking, overall, anything that damages cell walls over time can also uh, damage a blood-brain barrier. Um, And it's able to recuperate to some extent, but what we see, for example, in the literature for traumatic brain injury is that that can take really long time. And so your brain can mm. be vulnerable after a brain injury for quite a while. Um, and that is scary because more things can come through, more toxins, more infections, more of anything.
1: After something yeah. like a concussion, for example. Yeah.
2: And you know one of the things that's
1: unfortunate
2: about the blood brain barrier, it does such a great job at keeping things out. It also keeps out most of the drugs that we use. So it's really hard to treat the brain mm-hmm. because most drugs that we have available that come in through your bloodstream, right, that we can give you as an IV or we can give you by mouth, doesn't, it's not able to cross blood band barrier, so it doesn't act on your brain. Mm-hmm. Very few medications out there are able to do that. And that's a big goal whenever companies are designing a new medication. It's how do we get it to cross blood band barrier so that it can act on the brain itself? So it's a huge limitation, but still it does an amazing job, so...
1: Yeah, does does more of a good job than a bad job for sure. Um, and how else would kind of the peripheral nervous system interact with the brain?
2: Um, so, I mean, it's bringing in a lot of information from what's happening in your body and in your environment. Uh, but there's also more of of um, there's it's going to it's going to relay information from other systems like your immune system or. Uh, your gut microbiome for example in order to regulate how the brain is functioning or for you to be able to understand what's happening um, right to be in constant connection um, so I'm not sure if that addresses the question but tell me if
1: I mean it does partially I, I love mentioning the <laughs> the gut brain axis and how the gut interacts mm-hmm. um, with the brain there's a lot of talk these past few years about the gut microbiome about how the vagus nerve kind of fits mm-hmm. into that um, that is super interesting
2: yeah absolutely and you know what the funny thing I was telling my students yesterday that um, as I was trying to look up the new literature on gut brain axis there's now a whole new literature building up on like the lung brain axis and the heart brain axis like every organ has an axis for the brain and, and and it manages to be able to do this it can communicate not just through you know, signals that it sends in the bloodstream, but also through that peripheral nervous system. Those nerves that come out, it can
1: also send information back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. I, I think part of the reason that the gut brain axis also mm. gets so much traction is because it's very easy for us to affect it. Yeah. Just by choosing what to eat every day.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating literature in that we learn that any little deviation from early in life can have such large implications for how, you know, for brain development, but for brain function throughout the lifespan. Uh, and, and you're right, your gut microbiome is constantly changing when you're stressed, when you're fighting an infection, when your diet changes, when you exercise, anything can change the makeup of the gut microbiome and we know that it's in constant communication with the brain and it can actually affect our cognition and our ability to you know carry out all these functions
1: of the brain optimally
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: it's one of my favorite topics honestly Uh, another whole rabbit (laughs) hole that we could dive down exactly fascinating um okay we've talked a bunch about the nervous system touched on the immune system and we know that stress impacts them both we're all obviously exposed to different stressors all the time these days. I know it's one of your favorite topics to discuss. Um, so we'd love to learn more from you about stress. What even is stress? What effect does it have on our bodies and our nervous system? I mean, this can take hours
2: just to talk about what stress is. But but stress is the response of the body and the brain. That includes the brain, right? Uh, it's the response that the body has to any challenge, anything that puts the system out of balance, anything that puts it out of homeostasis, your body needs to react. And so any new challenge in the world, whether it is cold, or it's scary, or it, you know, you haven't been able to eat, or you have to run and exercise, all of these are challenges for the body that throw it off of homeostasis, and that will activate a stress response. And that stress response comes via a number of mechanisms. One is through an endocrine response, that we know as, you know, from HPA hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and the release of cortisol. This is a hormone that maybe a lot of people are more familiar with as a stress hormone. But you also have a sympathetic nervous system, which is part of the peripheral nervous system, that's also carrying out that stress response. So, HPA axis and sympathetic nervous system are going to be working together to prepare your body to deal with whatever that stressor is, whatever that challenge is, so that you can overcome it, survive it. Get past it, um, and yeah, it, it's there's a lot of processes that happen in between, <laughs> yeah. and, and
1: especially a lot of different processes between kind of the acute single stress or even something we perceive as a positive stressor like exercise, yeah, um, and something more chronic and and more negatively perceived.
2: Yeah, acute stress, the acute stress response. Acute just means in the moment when the challenge is presented. That stress response is there to do good and to help you overcome and get, you know, get past it and survive it. But the fact is that for many different reasons, we, you know, the environment that we live in as humans, that stress response can be activated and stay on for prolonged periods of time and that's what we call chronic stress. And in that chronic phase, it's no longer serving a beneficial purpose for you, but it actually now it's harming. And so that's definitely a whole conversation that we can have at any other time. But it's, you know, chronic stress can destroy so much of your body and including your brain. Um, And it's something that we deal with every
1: single day. And and is that mainly through the mechanisms of cortisol affecting the brain or some other things you'd like to... Um, touch on.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it does it's definitely a complex system. so it's not just one hormone that's going to be doing the job, but cortisol is going to play a role in carrying out some of the functions important for the acute stress and then some of the dysfunction that happens later on. Um, and then you have interactions between the immune system and the brain that are going to be activated via that stress response that then can also damage. Uh, the brain and damage the body. Um, And then, of course, you have the peripheral nervous system, like epinephrine and norepinephrine, coming from that sympathetic nervous system that are also going to be causing problems in the long term. Like initially, for example, your sympathetic nervous system is really good at increasing your heart rate so that we can pump a lot of blood around your body and you can run away if you need to. But imagine if it's doing that on a day in and day out. You know, That's how we then have problems with your heart, including high blood pressure, right? Which is more of a vascular problem, but you get my point. <laughs> you Absolutely. can definitely damage the heart over time because of these systems being activated for prolonged periods of time.
1: What are some things people could do, or maybe even are already doing that could offer some protection mm-hmm. and buffer against these negative effects of chronic stress?
2: Yeah. So you're right. I mean, especially living in New York City, this even if you're not looking for it, even if you're not trying to be part of the drama of New York City, it comes and finds you. You You can't (laughs) hide, (laughs) right? Like the busy streets, the noisy, the, the overcrowded. It's so wonderful in so many ways, but also can be so stressful, right? And so stress can come from many different sides, whether it is at your job, it is out in public, it is in your personal life with your loved ones, it is, or your not loved ones, right? Um, Social interactions overall can be very stressful. And so there's, there's things that are constantly driving this system. And there's ways that we can start to, sometimes that system definitely goes haywire, and it's hard to put a brake on it and reverse some of that. But for the general public, right, if you understand that this is happening on a daily basis, whether or not you're conscious of it, there's definitely a lot that is out there in the literature that shows that can be protective, neuroprotective, right? Protect your neurons. That's the whole goal. Um, One of them is exercise. I always, you know, I tell my patients every day, I see so many patients who come in with concerns for dementia and I'm like, they're like, what, what drug can I take? What medication? I'm like, oh my God. But here's three things that absolutely we know protect your brain and it can work for stress. It can work for anything, including natural aging process. That is exercise, exercise daily, 30 minutes of just walking hard enough, all right? Like I'm a lazy walker, but you need to feel like you're breathing a little harder, your heart rate is coming a little up, that's good enough. You don't have to go crazy, don't do like a thousand jumping jacks, you don't need to run a marathon at all. Like just just a little exercise to turn on that system. It helps with protecting something like your hippocampus. It helps with improving neurogenesis, which is the birth of new cells, in your hippocampus, which is so important for memory formation, for example, and a lot of your other cognitive functions. Um, So exercising daily, staying socially connected. Mm. Now that can be a double-edged sword, right? Like social interactions can be stressful, but also we're social species. So sometimes when social interactions are stressful, you can take a break or you can find the right kinds of social interaction. Like maybe it's just the people you're hanging out with and you can like go find some <laughs> nice ones. <laughs> um, but, but staying connected, being able to talk to people, being able to share the experience of the day, it's something that really, I'm, I'm also a therapist, so obviously this is, <laughs> being able to talk to somebody makes a huge difference. Um, but, but being part of that community, of that social community can be extremely protective. We know that for people with, for example, who are cancer survivors, the outcomes tend to be so much better when they're socially connected. And part of that is because it, it can actually be um, medicine in its own way to reduce the negative effects that the treatment that they're getting can have, that the stresses of cancer and fighting cancer can have, but also even for the immune system. Alright, so social interactions can be extremely helpful in setting up an immune system that's going to be strong and robust and less of the, you know, damaging, inflammatory things that your immune system can get up to. Um, But that's another day for a story for another day. Um, And then the other thing is sleep, sleeping Mm -hmm. well. People think, they always say like sleep is overrated. Your brain needs that sleep. (laughs) The only way that it can regenerate, and what we mean is, Your cells are being damaged day in and day out because you're exposed to a million things in the natural process of aging, and it's creating its own toxins as you use them. And so it actually helps to be able to give it that time to clean it up and reverse some of that damage. And it can do that quite efficiently, but it does need that time, and it does this through sleep. So it's not for dreaming. Dreams are. I'm sure they have its use. There's a lot of books about it, including, you know, in therapy, you can like analyze your dreams, but whatever. <laughs> that's not why it's so important to sleep. It's important because your brain needs to regenerate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a few hours is not enough to accomplish that. So, I always tell my patients like 8 hours, aim for 8 hours. Sometimes you get away with 7 because that's all you can do and that's fine. Don't beat yourself over it. 8 hours. Some people need 9 and that's okay. I'm not going to judge you.
1: But me, speci- <laughs> me, me personally, actually,
2: <laughs> I prefer twelve, but you know, <laughs> I cut myself off at eight, and that's okay. So you need time to let this happen. So sleeping, socially active, exercising, and of course, other, th- other things like you know, a good diet is always helpful. Mm-hmm. But more important than anything, it's being in touch with yourself and understanding, you know, is this bothering me, and why is it bothering me, and being able to rein in some of that stress um, and remove some of it from your life, but also being able to learn how to tolerate the distress that comes along with stress, (laughs) um, can really be protective as well. So when people like suffer in silence and don't, you know, try to push it away and don't really address it, it, there's no way to rein and control that stress. And I think, you know, one of my favorite quotes, um, I'll send you the name of the person who said it because it's not coming to mind in a second. but um, he said, you know if you if, if, if you can't beat your stressors, right? If you can't get rid of your stressor, then learn to love it. right And this is like the father of stress. So it'll come to mind at some point. But yeah, it's it's this idea of, you know you don't have to learn how to love the things that are miserable in your life, but you really have to learn how to, control the power that that stressor has over you and there's different ways to change your perspective Um, those are the things I focus on in therapy Mm -hmm. but (laughs) yeah. yeah so those those are a lot of things that you can do to bring back some of
1: that stress so if there was one thing you would like people to take away something maybe that you implement from your knowledge of neuroscience something that helps you you want to share with our audience
2: yeah sure I you know one of the things in thinking about chronic stress and the fact that we're constantly exposed to it one of the things I like to do for myself and I try to tell like all my patients and encourage them to do it I call it like five minutes of happiness but I've moved it to one minute of happiness because it's so hard to find five (laughs) minutes of your day so efficient yeah (laughs) so you can do it for one minute every day and all you have to do is sit there and think about happy things like I can't meditate for the life of me it doesn't like my brain does not focus, but I can very actively just focus on happy things. Sometimes I think about like cake, other times I think about my dog, other times I think about vacations I've taken or like all the people I love. And it's one way to activate this, you know, feeling of like peace and happiness inside of you and i'm sure it's releasing a good amount of dopamine as i'm doing that because it feels good and oxytocin <laughs>
1: so, that's such day. an awesome tip so, <laughs>
2: yeah one minute one minute a day just think of happy things and i think it can make you it can it can counteract some of these chronic stressors that we deal with especially in new york city god god knows <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> Indeed. oh my goodness thank you so much dr Oliveira. that was fascinating you're welcome Ooh, hopefully we can have you on at least one more time because there there's sure. so many things we could still discuss. <laughs> thank you very, very much. Sure, thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're interested in learning more, check out the episode description for some additional links and resources. If you liked today's episode, please don't forget to follow, subscribe, and give us that five-star rating wherever you're listening. To join our community and see more of our visual content, follow us on Instagram at the.synapse.nyc. That's the.synapse.nyc. As always, we'd love to hear from you and any thoughts, feedback, or questions you might have. See you soon!